Spirit Switchboard, airing live on the United Public Radio Network, 105.3 New Orleans. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Spirit Switchboard. You are listening to us live on the United Public Radio Network and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network 105.3 and 107.7 New Orleans. Today on Spirit Switchboard, I am welcoming Rebecca F. Pittman. She is the best-selling author in several genres. Her popular history and haunting series um, of books have been spotlighted on various TV, radio, and podcast forums. She is a former TV talk show host, muralist, escape room owner, game creator, and runway model that finds mysteries irresistible. And she's going to join me today to talk about Lizzie Borden. Thank you for joining me today. I am so excited to be here. And this is probably one of my favorite topics. Oh, so I, I, it, it was a deep dive, but before it, it was a deep dive and I am loving loving your book. I told my daughter when I was preparing for today, I felt like I needed to get a flow chart with pictures and names that so it would be behind me so we could keep up. There's, it's a lot. I told her I was going to have to go back. I think I just, I'm on, yeah, um, uh, chapter 20, burning paper and um, hidden oh, wow. hatchets. That's where I'm at right now. So I'm going to have to. It's a big book. I tell people it doubles as a burglar weapon and doorstop. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate that. It's, it's true. It's true. And, and before we, we, we dig down into that. So we do have a few people saying hello, Michelle, uh, Julie, Tom. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. Um, there was, there was just so much. I had this running list of things that where I wanted to start. I think where I'd like to to start, if it's okay, is talking about, you know, where your list of hats that you have worn is so, all of them creative in one way or another, but so varied. And um, I, I mean, I've always been able to tap into the other side. It's how I grew up being able to see people that are crossed over. It's been part of my world. It's part of my children's world. It's their normal as well, too. So I find those of us who are intuitive lean into those creative jobs. So was intuition, creativity, tapping into the other side part of your world when you were little? My mother had some psychic ability, and that was my first view of it. And I was very little when I first saw her. We were driving on the way to my uncle's house in California, her brother. I think I was seven. My sister was six. We were in the back seat. She swerved off and burst out crying. I thought she'd hit something. Oh. And she said, my mother just died. Now, this is way back before cell phones or anything else. And, you know, I'm little and I'm going, what? I mean, our grandmother lived in a whole nother state. And it took her a while to get composed. We drove over to her brother's house. We got out of the car. He came out of the door crying and he said, sis, mom just died. So oh. that was my first going. There's more 
out there. And it really freaked me out as a little kid. I couldn't understand. Yep. I yeah. have nothing like what you have. I am so jealous. I've been called an empath. I think a lot of ghosts, I get a lot of paranormal activity where I research places. And I think it's because I'm sentimental and I want to pat the bed and say, come tell me what happened to you. Yes. Well, this is it. And I, and I, I, this is why I'm fangirling. <laughs> you, I love history. So I do these events called Dining with the Dead, and I've done them for 11 years now. And when I started doing them, I always chose venues that had some sort of historical history to them because it's, um, it, 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 it's, I, I feel very humbled when I get to hear their yeah. stories and, and being immersed in those places. And you give such, a, it is a deep dive. It is rich history um, that you are sharing in, in, in these books. So I, I appreciate that a lot. It's important to me. I, I mean, if I'm going to take on a big subject, I want to give it 110%. And I right. write a book thinking, would I enjoy this? What's it missing? What would I like to know? When I wrote The History and Haunting of the Palace of Versailles, oh my gosh, that was so daunting. And there's all these Louis. I'm going, did they not have another name to choose from? <laughs> so, yeah, I appreciate that. That's a huge compliment to me. The history hooks me. And yep. then they just happen to be in the most top, the top 10 most haunted venues. So yeah. you get the paranormal activity at the end of the book. So I, and I haven't got there yet, to be honest. So then there was part of me wishing that maybe we had pushed the date back a bit. So I'm hoping, I mean, I know bits and pieces, but what I thought I knew, I didn't, like, it's not necessarily truthful. There's so much misinformation and speculation and around Lizzie Borden. Like it's, it's a lot. If you type in Lizzie Borden, there's all kinds of theories and stories and it's incredible. So. Yeah. Well, I spent five years researching this book. Wow. And I am not the end all on this, uh, but what I did do in the book was try to back it up with transcripts, police reports, the best I could. The only time I went off route, was I, I, I do believe that she first tried to poison Andrew and Abby at the farmhouse where they were expected on the Monday before they were murdered. And then all the farmhands got sick. I do believe Lizzie did put arsenic in the milk at the farmhouse thinking they were going to be there and then they changed their mind and didn't go. That's the only place I go off in the book except even the newspapers back then said they suspected poison at the farm right and even marshall hilliard went out to ask uh mr eddie about it and um so i that's the only place i took some liberties i do believe everything else in the book i have backed up and i mean photos and uh I love how you, um, the, the parts of the book where you've got the magnifying glass, where you're taking a deeper look at it. Yes. Yes. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. So you hand us the facts and then you go, okay, let's, let's regroup into this and, and let's go over this again. And, and I appreciate that. So well, I'm just, thank you. my head's not going to fit out of here when this is over with <laughs> now that I've written two true crime books. Um, oh, it's I, just like, 
the yep. research is really hard. I'm not going to lie. It is a lot of work and I, my integrity is very important to me. And so I try very, very hard to back up what I'm saying. Um, but it's a lot of work uh, and five years for Lizzie. I read the trial transcripts, 5,000 pages. Oh my goodness. Three times through. And it was when you read it the first time, it's to get the lay of the land. Then you read the the, the transcripts again, and you start noticing inconsistencies. It's right. like, wait a minute, that's not what they said before. And then by the third time you go through, it's like a little hand sticking out of the paper going over here, look at me. Yeah. And you find the lies and you start putting that together. And then you have police reports and witness statements and coroner reports. So I actually miss it. it I, I'm probably going to be doing a book called uh, Countdown to Murder Lizzie Borden with some of the other new things I have found since extending my research. Wow. But it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, and I, I, I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the, the thoroughness to it as well, too. And when you talk, so you do... Um, the countdown to murder and you do the history and haunting those two. And you, you do have, um, a young adult, uh, um, yes. novel as well too. TJ Fennell and the well of ghosts. Um, it was it's the, I am writing a novel soon called when shadows walk, but, um, TJ is for actually it's the Harry Potter market. It's for all ages. In fact, the most of the five-star reviews were from adults but it it is a it's in the well of ghosts. I can't get away from the ghosts. But um, <laughs> once I you step that. into it, you can't go backwards. No, you can't. I nobody wants me to write about ballet at this point. So no, <laughs> I I'm I yeah no. <laughs> but I probably would read it because I I enjoy how you write. So thank I, you. I, I I would I would probably still read it. That means I have I could throw in a haunted tutu. <laughs> <laughs> There's, there probably is somewhere a, a murder mystery unsolved or, yes. we, you know, that we could yes. find the, for you to the write case about. Of the bloody tutu. I can see it. That's so funny. Pam, uh, Pam Hupp. Uh, is, is that, am I saying that correctly? Pam, yes, yes. Pam Hupp, death yes. insured. Death insured. Well, yeah, she was my first countdown to murder and she's a serial killer out of St. Louis. I don't know anything about it, but it's cued. So when I'm done, Lizzie, I'm heading to Pam. Well, it may, it was the most episodes datelines ever done. And wow. then it spawned a TV movie that Renee Zellweger helped produce. And she plays Pam and it's called the thing about Pam and it's on TV. It's streaming. And I wasn't particularly happy with the tone that took like almost like farce. Uh, it was it, they they put a comical tone to it, which, after interviewing the victims' families, I thought it was just wrong tone for the show. Right. But this is a story that will knock your socks off. She is something else. Well, I'm ready. And then, I mean, you did Alex Murdoch too. Like, I'm gonna pop my popcorn and curl up with my books. I'm telling you, I'm ready to cocoon for the winter because the whole list is 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 there. So. Uh, Laura Lee is just sharing. I can't believe how many people in the paranormal world follow true crime as well. It's not that it's not that big of a segue. If you look at it, they both involve mysteries and puzzles and clues. 
And to me, that's why it was an easy transition for me because it's always been the puzzles and the mystery and the unknown. And true yeah. crime until it's solved is a lot of that. So it was very easy for me to transition into that. And um, the unknown, like what, what fuels them? What fuels them to that decision to the do harm? People? Yeah. I'll well, no, no, no. Like there. the murderers that you write about, like these people that are doing these acts, what, what drives them? Like trying to understand and, and. Well, according to the experts, it's usually money, sex, power, greed, jealousy. Um, it just depends on the individual, what their motives are. I do know that with Pam and Alex, a lot of it revolved around money. Yeah. I don't know much, so I'm not going to ask too much yet because I want to read okay. it. And then and then we can have a discussion about Pam after. Okay. <laughs> we can have a discussion about, yeah, Michelle um, is just saying it's the human aspect, right? It is the human aspect and it's the voyeurism in us that wants to see it. Yeah. I don't know if you agree with me on that, but we all want to pull that curtain back because of the audacity of these crimes. It's not something we could do. Yeah. When you, you can't, can't wrap your head look away. Yeah. And we can't wrap our head around it. Like I just can't, we can't wrap our head around it. Hello, Paul in New York city. Hello, Noel. Kayla and Megan, thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today. Hi, that was that was one of the first questions that I wrote. Like this murder took place so long ago, but everyone is still emotionally invested, debates it. Uh, Stanford, I read somewhere online that Stanford uh, did another like mock trial, like wow. a mock murder trial for it. Like it's it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think we're so pulled to? Um, the Lizzie story. I think it's the unusualness of it. It's it's not the locked door mystery, but it's close. If this supposedly the murder of her father was in 10 minutes. Within a 10 minute time span, he had been murdered and she had called for Bridget, yet there was no blood on her. So how in the world did she do everything she did, including murder him, clean up, get rid of the murder weapon, all of that, in 10 minutes. And I think also what's fascinating is this was a woman in mm. the Victorian era doing the one of the most heinous double murders with a hatchet. It's unheard of. Right. Women were pills and arsenic. That was their go-to. Arsenic was such a popular method of getting rid of people for money. They called it the inheritance poison. Um, it was like that, get rid of Uncle Harry because I want my money sooner for, from the will. So for a woman to do that was, but what's interesting to me is this came on the heels of Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper was still making the headlines. Oh, this, Jack the Ripper yeah. was 1888 and this happened in 1892. Had Lizzie, and I bet you she had, been following the story in the Lizzie Borden kitchen. There were all the Harper magazines, newspapers. I guarantee you she was fascinated with that case. I've often wondered did the idea to use a sharp object come from the Jack the Ripper case. I don't know. Yeah. Megan is just sharing with us um, when we were uh, talking earlier about, about the, why we get interested, she's saying, but also understanding how the brain works and how trauma and experiences can lead to a human being to such heinous acts. 
This and is very true. There's so much that goes into it. A lot goes into it. Ted Bundy, I mean, a lot of the serial killers, some of them were locked in closets as children. He found, Ted Bundy found out he was illegitimate, had a lot of issues around that. So absolutely. So there are people who have investigated and that's their, um, the line of questioning that has come up in paranormal investigations. If there were, um, if there was abuse for her, is there anything that can back that up? Was there any evidence of inappropriate behavior from a family member or like I want to squash the theory right now that there thank was you any yeah misconduct between her father and her Andrew could care less about that the man was all about numbers and business yeah. he gave his two daughters everything he felt they needed they had a very generous clothing allowance every month Lizzie went on the grand tour of Europe only two years before the murders. Um, he gave them what he thought was necessary for a pragmatic Yankee thrift guy. The fact that they didn't have a bathtub and had to take hip baths, I can, you know, I can see that. They complained about the indoor plumbing and things like that, and that the rich Bordens up on the hill had bathtubs and fancy houses where they lived was an embarrassment. A 92 um, Second Street was literally one street over from Maine and was half commerce. Right across the street were livery stables and restaurants and a Chinese laundry. And yet all of the other Borden relatives, most of them were living up in these gorgeous mansions. But as far as abuse, no. Lizzie's mother died when she was only two, which had to be hard. Emma raised her for a while until Abby came along. And can you explain to people who don't know, maybe don't know, um, like who the these, uh, like who the main characters? I really, you know, feel like I should have made the flow chart behind me because <laughs> there's a lot of people. So if you could break down like the, um, and I'll just share this really quickly too. Hi, Tina. I'm so glad that you're hanging out. Uh, Laura Lee is just adding, like, um, especially in that time period throughout history to commit a physically gruesome crime, especially, you know, that she was a woman. Um, and a this, Sunday school this, teacher and a Borden. And a Borden. So the characters here, who what we're talking about, Andrew Borden was married to Sarah Borden, who gave birth to Lizzie and Emma. Emma was nine years older than Lizzie. So, but... Andrew's first wife, Sarah, died, and Lizzie was only two. And Emma, being nine years older, raised her for most of the time. Lizzie looked to her as her mother. And then when Andrew remarried and married Abby Durfee Gray, Abby, by that time, had given up on marriage. She was in her 40s, and they just, you'd given up by then, pretty much. Or at least in her 30s. By the, I don't know, she was in her 40s. So... She tried very hard to be a good stepmother. From all accounts, she treated the girls well, but it was not reciprocated, especially by Emma. Emma hated her more than Lizzie did because Emma saw her as the usurper in the family. Emma had practically oh. raised Lizzie. And here's this new mother figure. They did call her mother until something happened um, a few years before the murders. And that was when Andrew 
put a house that belonged to the to the grandfather in the family or one of the members. He owned the the home. He put it in Abby's sister half sister's name so that she could have a place to live. She was in a bad position and had nowhere to go. So he gifted her enough money for her to stay in this house that should have been in Lizzie and Emma's inheritance. They blew up, came back and said, what you've done for her, you should have done for us. So he hurried and gave them their grandfather's house on Ferry Street and let them keep all the rent from it to try to soothe things. But it never was the same again. That's when they quit calling her mother and called her Mrs. Borden. And these are, are women in their... 30s, correct? Like late 20s at that time when they're having this. Yeah, well, the like not children. Was 32 and yeah. it was almost 42. Not children. No. No, but not. Lizzie, when you delve into it, and I have it in the back of the book, I believe she was a true narcissist and a sociopath. Mm. Even in high school, what the, the kids would say about her, the, the few girlfriends she had when they go visit her was she was real blue real moody, not happy. You get this sense of somebody with severe mood swings. Even on the grand tour, when she went with two of the Borden cousins, they weren't used to hanging out with her. Even the chaperone for the trip said, I don't know who she is because she didn't travel in their circles. Yeah. And she was socially awkward. She hadn't dated really. And you get this sense of somebody that, had a hard time with a hand in her face and very huge temper. So when she got back off from the grand tour in 1880, which was, or 1890, somewhere in a couple of years before the murders, she was in such a state after seeing what she could have in Europe with the right. cousins that lived up on the hill. It was worse. I think Andrew was hoping, give her the grand tour, give her what she wants Instead, she blew up and Emma switched bedrooms with her and let Lizzie have the little bedroom, which is literally almost like a closet, and let and Lizzie took the big bedroom. So Emma took the smaller room and Lizzie got the big room and it still wasn't enough. And that's when I think the powder keg was starting. And you can, that was something that um, I made note of when I was reading uh, the book. Um, which I'm not finished yet. So I'm, I'm, I'm only on chapter 20. So was there was a systematic um, conscious um, a, approach of, of dropping little hints here and there in creating these alibis. And it started long before uh, even the, the milk incident, like, leaving these little hints to build up her story here and there with different people in different um, experiences, right? Could you? Yeah, one year before the murder. So this is actually bookend. She gets home from the Grand Tour. A year later, Abby's bedroom is broken into her dressing area and things that are very personal to Abby are stolen. It's not something a burglar would take. One thing was like a little pocketbook with a strand of hair that must have been sentimental to her. The watch that Andrew had gotten her was taken. Money and horse tickets, which were the what they would use for the, the, the trolley, the horse trolley, 
But back then, when you purchased them, your name was on them. And so whoever gave these tickets or they bought them from somebody, this gentleman's name was on the horse tickets. Right. And when the burglary happened, Lizzie's running around with all excited with the policeman and showing them like a 10 penny nail sticking out of the lock to the to the bedroom because all the doors were always locked in that house saying so this is how they must have gotten in. And but the thing is, is so Andrew calls in the police and then two weeks later, he suddenly calls them off. And the reason we find out is that somebody she gave those horse tickets, the horse trolley ride to somebody else. And the guy's name was on them and they oh. traced them back to the tickets that were stolen. And when Andrew said, where did you get these? They said, Lizzie Borden gave them to us and he called off the investigation. So it was escalating. So he, her father knew that she was sneaking around and, and plotting and was not truthful. Oh, no, the woman, no. But here's what I found that you might love is that the thing with Lizzie is she anchored all of her lies with objects. And I started finding this over and over again. It was almost like it was her anchor so she could remember the lie. And uh, every time I started seeing an object she mentioned, I circled it. And that's super enough, calculated. It was important. What? That's super calculated. That's it very is. calculated. It, it, but it's so interesting to look at the psychology yeah. behind it. Yeah. The one that really blew my mind was I was trying to figure out how she broke the hatchet the way she did. And for people out there, um, the hatchet they believe murdered Andrew was different from the one that murdered Abby. Yeah. And, and the poem is wrong. The po It's not an ax. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and the, the order's wrong. But so the police on the morning of the murders are looking all over the house and they're in the cellar and they come across a broken hatchet and I have visual aids. Oh, so this is actually a shingling hatchet from 1893, which is one year after the murder. So this is very similar. Wow. It's called the shingling hatchet because it has this claw in the back to pull nails. So they did right. roofing with it. Well, this was broken right here, completely, I'm trying to get this right, completely snapped off. So the handle's gone. This is all you had left was this head. And it was thrown up in a box of dusty tools and it was made to look like it was dusty, like it had been there a long time. But the police immediately when they saw it said, something's wrong here. A, it's a fresh break. B, that's not dust, it's coal dust. And there was coal dust all in the cellar from the coal and so what she had done is broken it to make it look like it could not have been used in the murder of Andrew, washed it, rolled it in coal dust to make it look dusty and threw it up with other tools that were broken. Wow. And then put the handle somewhere else. So, but if you look at this, this is actually wider than the one she used. Hers was three, three and a quarter inches, which is only this much from here to where my fingers are right the, the head is in the fall river historical society and the first thing i thought when i saw that head was how diminutive it was the blade is literally only that big i thought that's a weapon a woman would have chosen yeah. it looks so little yeah and so it wouldn't have been intimidating for her to use 
No, it is a little top heavy. I think my wrists would have gotten tired after all that she had done with it. But right. so anyway, it, everybody I noticed in a lot of the Lizzie Borden blogs were saying they had tried and tried to replicate how she broke it and couldn't because it's like a baseball bat. It will usually splinter with the grain. If you hit it and it breaks, it usually splinters. Right. But this was like, and it wasn't sawn. They said that in court. There were no cut marks. Drove me nuts. So you're going to love this part. I, I, you have visuals in the book. Yes, I do at the back. Yes. Uh, so I kept think I kept seeing that all of her lights were anchored with an object. Right. So at the time, my husband had been out back. We went and bought a whole bunch of hatchets and all of this other stuff. We kept practicing on it. None of them would break right. And I'm sure the neighbors are looking over the fence going, what you doing? <laughs> but so I thought I went out, I, I looked at it. And one of the policemen asked Lizzie, what else did you do while you were in the barn? She said, I picked up a chip of wood. Now, the reason they're asking, this was when Andrew was murdered. Lizzie's alibi was she was in the barn eating pears. Right. And was not in the house. And I thought, picked up a chip of wood who says that i mean who cares that you picked and then the light bulb went off i went running out to the back where my husband's still playing with these things i said put it put a little block of wood under it and he goes what are you talking about i said elevate it and put a little block of wood just below where the, we know the break was like right yeah. there so now it's at an incline a slight in i said now hit it he hit it the head went flying and the break is identical. That's In fact, wild. when I showed it to the Fall River Historical Society, Dennis there, the curator said, how in the heck did you do that? And the pictures are in the book, both of the real one and of our experiment. Yeah. But isn't that amazing? It's she amazing. anchored that lie with a chip of wood and she wasn't in the barn. She was in the basement and picked up a chip of wood and put it on the stump and then hit it with a different, with a, the ax that was down there to break it. Laura Lee is just saying this is so fascinating and I really appreciate all of these Lizzie Borden details that I hadn't, I hadn't heard about before. Thank you. I appreciate that. I tend to go off because I get excited because the psychology of these people fascinates me. Um, hi, Sandra. Thank you for joining us. I'm just going to put this up here for you as well, too. Um, Paula Barton is saying, Lizzie's life is so fascinating to me, and it's one of my favorites. Thank you, Paula. I agree with you. It's You can't look away. It's just, it is amazing. But it is, if you, if you read the book, or even if you go read the trial transcripts yourself, take a look at how often she mentions an object and how it plays into it. Well, and her story changes slightly as well, too. And I could, could you talk about the Bedford courting, the Bedford dress? Absolutely. So May, the murders were August 4th. In right. May, which they did every spring, they had a dressmaker come to the house and make some new clothes for them. There were usually two seasons. Dresses were made or bought. The people with money went to Paris and bought clothes for the season and right. then you did it again in the fall so that you had your winter clothes so a dressmaker came out and made two dresses for lizzie 
One was what they call a Bedford cord, and it's ribbed like corduroy, which is why they call it cord. It was cheap material. It was meant to be a house dress, uh, not something you'd really wear out in public. The other one was a pink and white striped, what they called a wrapper. It was, a, again, not something you would really wear out in public, but you could wear it once you got your corset off and could relax through the day. It's like what we would wear as a robe today, only it was much more frilly. And right. Robin, thank you. Yes, I wanted <laughs> um, to see this. She said, Is it, love this, it's so fascinating, and then said, I'm getting the book. It's you. worth it, I'm telling you, you it's, it's a deep dive, I love it, I'm loving it. Well, I have to warn you guys, this is how big it is. Yeah. So just understand you're in for a commitment. But it yeah. is packed, I can't do this with this camera, it is packed with pictures. So it does go faster than you think because of the diagrams and the the pictures, but um, so those it are supports the dresses it. that she I, had made. Sorry, I, 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 I just was wanting to say, like, I appreciate it. Like, I, I truly appreciate the amount of time and effort. It's no wonder that it took you five years. Like, the diagrams and the photos and the research, everything that you did is, is um, just wow. Thank you. That means so much to me. I've been fascinated with this since junior high. So to be able to write a book and do the research and meet all of the wonderful people out in Massachusetts that I did was just, it's awesome. They're still my really dear friends. And plus I've never seen so many Dunkin' Donuts in my life. And <laughs> but I, I, I mean, you, you certainly have built that reputation of, of um, researching and, and, and giving as much information as possible, um, honoring and respecting the stories and the people that are involved. You are now on my Christmas list. <laughs> but I mean it. I, I'm, I'm quite sincere um, with this. It like, does mean a lot. I, I, my four sons think they're Jim Carrey, so I go through life with sarcasm and wit. But I want you to know I really appreciate you saying that. It means a lot to me. You're welcome. And so let's pull back to the Bedford dress. So she was wearing two dresses or what prevent, was she wearing two dresses that day or she, and she changed. Can you explain that? Yes. And I, I want to do it in order because it can get confusing. It is the yep. tale of three dresses. Okay. So what I believe is that she murdered Abby at nine, right, right around nine 30 the morning of August 4th. And the timing is because Abby was supposed to be picked up at 10 to be taken to the bank for a deed to the Swansea farm, which was also in Emma and Lizzie's inheritance to be signed into Abby's name. Andrew and Lizzie and Emma's uncle, John Morse were about to turn it into a big money-making cattle and horse concern. They were hiding it from Emma and Lizzie because wow. what happened when Andrew helped Abby's sister out with the other house, they knew they'd go through the roof. This is 250 acres plus two farmhouses. It was a huge piece of their inheritance. So Lizzie found out and knew they didn't know she knew she was always one step ahead of them that somebody was going to pick Abby up in 30 minutes to take her to the bank to sign that over into her name. 
So she took a hatchet to her in the guest room where Abby was making up the bed because Uncle John Morris had just stayed the night before for them to get everything ready for the next day for the bank. She's in the guest room and she's cornered. She's between the, the bed and the dresser. And Lizzie comes in and I believe she came in with the pretense of folded laundry, which they had all just picked up off the couch in the dining room. Bridget had just put their individual piles. Lizzie took hers upstairs. And I think she, it would, I think the hatchet was between the linens she was holding, whether it was mm. folded sheets or whatever. And I don't know if she said, I don't know. I think this is your handkerchief. I think I got it by mistake or whatever. But when Abby turned toward her, she whipped out the hatchet. And we know Abby was facing her for the first blow. It took off a flap of her cheek um, back to her, her ear. And I believe at that point she doubled over because the next two are small cuts to the top of her head. At that point, she turned to flee, but there was nowhere to go. Lizzie's right. walking the only way out. She's trapped now between the bed and the dresser. As she turns her back, Lizzie takes the hatchet and gets her right between the shoulder, right at the nape of the neck, and she goes down. At that point, we believe she straddled her and then hit, hit her another 16, 15, 16 times, wow. mainly to the back and right of her head. So I believe she was wearing the Bedford Core dress. And the reason for this is right after the dressmaker made it, they had had painters at the house and Lizzie got paint on the front of it at the bottom of the skirt. So the dress is pretty much ruined. It's okay to wear around the house, but for her, this was not going to be a loss to have blood all over this dress. And right. so at then this is where it gets interesting. At that point, I do believe after she cleaned up, that she changed into a second dress that she had just had made shortly before the murders during a clandestine trip to New Bedford. Um, thank you, Grant. Um, I really, thank you. Oh my gosh, you guys have a great audience. Um, <laughs> yes, I do I have a great tell audience. You about the second dress? Yes, please. Yes. Okay. On July 21st, now keep in mind the murders were August 4th, Lizzie and Emma got on a train to New Bedford. Emma was going to start her August vacation, and very often people back then would go by the water because it's so hot and humid. If they had a place they could go to be by a river or an ocean, that's where they went for August. That's why Andrew and Abby were going to go to the farmhouse in Swansea. It was right by the creek for August and everybody knew they were supposed to go there. Um, in fact, when they showed back up, somebody stopped Andrew on the street and said, I thought you were headed for the farm. He goes, no, there's trouble at home, which was so uncharacteristic of him. He was so private. So anyway, so Emma is going to go to Fairhaven and stay with her friends, the Brownells. And so they, Lizzie was supposed to go on on the train after Emma got off at Fairhaven to Marion, where her girlfriends were waiting for her for a fun time fishing and all of that by the water. Well, Emma got off, they hugged, and she assumed, I guess, according to her, that Lizzie was going to continue on to Marion, which was another 20 minutes. Well, Lizzie didn't. She got off in New Bedford. 
and spent five days there that nobody knew where she was or what she was doing. And it wasn't until later when the police were looking up her story that they interviewed a woman at a boarding house who was actually a friend, but Lizzie stayed at while she was in New Bedford. And the policeman said, was she always with you while she was here? And she, the lady said, well, yeah, except for Saturday morning, she was gone an hour and a half and came back with a bolt of dress material, of material. And that, and so here's where, and this to me is so fascinating. To me, this is one of the linchpins to prove her guilt. So the, this is Officer Medley found this out, reported back to, to Marshall Hilliard. And Knowlton was now going to be the attorney that was going to prosecute Lizzie or whoever at that point. So all of this information was being fed in. So for those days, nobody knew where Lizzie was or what she was doing. All we know is she bought dress material when she was supposed to be in Marion fishing with her friends. She, this is August or well, the end of July. She'd already had the dresses made in May. Right. Typically, you don't continue to make them. You do them twice a year, like I said. There, there was no reason for her to be buying the material. So she does not go to Marion. Andrew and Abby are getting ready to go to the farm when she pops back up on Monday, which is now August 1st. So actually, she was gone nine days total. I believe in that nine days, she had a dressmate. And when you hear the testimony of the people who saw what she was wearing the morning of the murders, and I'll go into that in just a minute, um, I believe she had a dress made that was loose fitting. And the testimony from witnesses will define that it was, and it was not what she typically wore. So I, she was already planning this. So she kills Abby in the New Bedford Court. Yep. Then she goes into her bedroom and I believe starts to put this other dress that she had made loose, loose fitting, had pleats, had what one of the detectives described as a bosom in the right. waist because they were called pigeon dresses. He didn't know how to describe it. It was just poofy down here. Totally different from what she used to wear. I'll show you a picture. Um, Lizzie wore, and I'm sorry, this is blurry. Can you, I, I'm not good with camera. Yep, there you go. You Perfect. It's very tight. Yeah. In the waist. Form very fitting. Form, all of hers were form fitting. Even her funeral dress, they commented on how tight it was. But this is what the witnesses right. saw. Now, if you can, I'm going to try to get this in where you can see it. Do you see how in this one, it's poofy down here above right. the waist? It's called a pigeon dress. The other one is pleated, and the material is poofing out over it. Right. So now this is a butterick pattern, and they, were, they started in 1863. It's very possible this is just like the pattern that Lizzie had in May. Wow. When the, when the dressmaker made, I'm not saying these are the two dresses she had made, but that butter yeah. made the pattern. So these are what they look like. It's an envelope. Those of you who saw know what it is. Inside is all of this paper that you have to unfold and cut up to make a pattern. It's a lot. It's a it lot to, to cut out for a dress. So Lizzie pops up on Monday. 
the 1st of August, and they are shocked, and Abby is nervous as heck. She knows Lizzie hates her. They're trying to get this clandestine land deal done behind her back, and here she is. She's supposed to be vacationing, and she pops back up. Now, I think she went to the farm first because the farmhands always delivered a can of fresh milk to the doorstep at the Borden house where the murders happened, but I believe right. they also would have had one waiting for Andrew and Abby at the farmhouse because they were supposed to start that day on that Monday and they changed their mind and didn't go. So I believe at that point, rather than waste the milk, the farmhands drank it and two of them were seriously ill, including the foreman, Mr. Eddie. And the, the newspapers were having suspicions that they were poisoned. So right. anyway, so I believe, and here's where it gets interesting. I think Lizzie went- No, it's the, all interesting. It's all interesting. <laughs> I think Lizzie went in the bedroom and tried to put that dress over the new Bedford cord. But the problem is they all had these leg of mutton sleeves. And I think right. she pulled on it. And I think the loop on the, that goes over the button on the new dress popped. And I think at that point, she took the new dress bodice off and thought, this isn't going to work. And I, she cut off or ripped off the two sleeves to get rid of the leg of mutton part. And then I believe she ripped off one inch of the hem of the new Bedford cord because even the dressmaker during testimony said it was one inch longer than all of her other dresses. And it would have shown out from beneath this dress she had made. So I think she ripped the sleeves off, ripped the hem off. Now you're basically down to a slip. Yeah. Puts the other dress on. And I think she bundled the scraps that she torn off into a pillowcase thing and stuffed them in Emma's closet. Emma's room was right off of Lizzie's. It was a connecting door. There's no hall. And the, the morning of the murders, a policeman reported seeing a bundle laying on the floor that he kicked at it to shut the door, closet door. Alice Russell, their best friend who was there trying to calm Lizzie down after the murders noticed it. I think the rags were in there. So then when they asked her what she did that morning, again, pay attention, she anchors it in an object. She said, I brought my laundry upstairs and I sewed on a bit of tape. Mm. That piece that popped, I'll bet you money, it was the loop for the button I mean, look at these little things that she mentioned. I picked yeah. up a chip of wood. I sewed a piece of tape. And so now she's got this dress on over the bloody one that she murdered Abby in. And I think at that point, after taking a hatchet to a human being and realizing what was involved, I think she thought, you know what? The danger's over. She's out of the way. He can't switch the deed now. I can't do this. I, I, I can't take a hatchet to my father. And now she's decided she's going to get out of the house. She goes downstairs where Bridget the maid is washing the windows inside. She'd been outside when um, Lizzie killed Abby. And she goes, Bridget, there's a sale of dress goods at Sargent's for eight cents a yard, trying to get her to go out of the house. And Bridget said, I am I'm going to have some, but I'm not feeling well and I'm going to go up and lie down. And so she, she tried again with Bridget to get her out of the house and she wouldn't go and said, I'm going to go lie down. So right. now she's stuck. 
She can't bring herself to leave the house. She's going to walk the dress out the door. She may have had plans to go somewhere and take it off and dispose of it somewhere else. Um, but if Bridget had been found with a dead Abby, they'd have hung her. She was an Irish immigrant. She was at the bottom of the totem pole. And I don't think Lizzie could bring herself to do it. She's trapped. So Bridget goes upstairs to her room to lie down. She did wash some windows first up there. And Lizzie, I believe at that point, put on, uh, Andrew came home, but the bad part was he came home early. It's one of those tricks of fate. He typically came home around 11. That day he came home at 1040 because Abby hadn't shown up at the bank. So he came home to see what had happened to her. Lizzie said, oh, she got a note from a sick friend and went out. So he's still not feeling well because all of them had been poisoned two nights before, except Lizzie. Lizzie except, drink yeah. Enough. Yeah. But they did, and they were still sick. And so he laid down on the sofa just to close his eyes. He left his shoes on, and typically he would take his shoes off, leave his socks on, and lay down on that sofa. But the fact that he put his feet on the floor with his shoes on tells me he thought Abby was coming in the door at any minute, and they could still go to the bank. So Lizzie, I believe, Andrew was almost six feet tall. Lizzie was 5'4". I think she put on his Prince Albert peacoat that he wore summer, winter, spring, no matter how hot it was, he wore that thing. And I, it would have covered her. She's 5'4". Even if she right. put the collar up, I think the sleeves probably came down over her fingers. And whoever murdered him did not stand directly behind his head on the couch. They leaned in around the dining room door. And I believe, and I know this sounds horrible, that she learned from killing Abby what not to do. And I think with Abby, it was so vicious. There was, there was throwback blood spatter on the ceiling, on the bedspread. And I think she learned you take shorter chops and that you don't stand right behind it. So by leaning around, the back splatter actually went on the parlor door behind her and you can tell no body was blocking it because the spatter's all over the door. Right. She would have hardly gotten anything on her at all. They wow. found one drop on the ceiling. And it hurt, the coat was bundled up under his head. Which was brilliant absolutely brilliant she would have probably taken it off wiped the hatchet head with it rolled it up put it under his head to make it look like he'd done it as a pillow he already had a pillow and he would never have rolled his coat up like that so now all of the wounds from 11 blows with a hatchet the blood is seeping into the coat so that it looks like the blood is supposed to be there it was absolutely brilliant it's just shocking it's so calculated and and shocking so uncle john uncle john is the pear eating be acting <laughs> peculiar <laughs> outside of the house person correct yeah that was odd you show yeah. up and there's 500 people around the house you just slept in last night. And rather than ask what happened, he walks back to the barn and leans against it, eating a pear, watching. <laughs> so um, Paula is just saying it's so maniacal. 
It is, Paula. It's it's beyond that. Um, this is somebody in a rage that felt her father maybe no longer loved Emma and and herself as much. I mean, he was giving away a huge chunk of their inheritance. He was about to turn 70. And back then, that's pretty uh. good for a guy. And I think she thought, won't be much longer and we will get all our inheritance. And then she finds out about this huge transaction going on behind her back. Do you, could we talk about um, like who the uncle John is? Did, and I have, a, I have another question too. Um, did, did Lizzie move her bedroom furniture? Like, people may not understand how the layout of the house actually is, you know, how the rooms were connected, um, eavesdropping, how that could have, how she could have found out that this was actually taking place where the trans land transfer was going to happen. The house was odd. It's called the house of locks. There weren't really hallways, each room interconnected into the next and the walls are thin and I've been there and you can hear exactly what's going on in the next room. Lizzie's bed was on the other side of the connecting door to Andrew and Abby's bedroom. So if they laid in bed at night and talked, she could have heard them. I also believe that they, they did most of their talking in the sitting room, which was directly beneath Lizzie's bedroom and had the same fireplace that connected up above to Lizzie's fireplace. I think she possibly took a brick out of the inside. They weren't using the fireplaces anymore. They'd gotten radiators, radiator heat, again, showing that Andrew did care about his family. And I think that she could have listened with a pipe through that hole or back then, you remember those big horns they'd listen with? Those right. big horns the old people had? It's that, it's that same concept of amplifying the sound. And that sound would have, could have gone right up that chimney and into her chimney. And they seem to, to do most of their planning and plotting in that sitting room. And so to test it, because I wrote about Limp Mansion in St. Louis, they have the same setup where the fireplaces are right above each other on the first floor and the second floor. And I asked Patty, I said, you're going to think I'm nuts. And I thought I was waiting for her to say no more than usual. But <laughs> um, I said, would you test it out for me? And of course they weren't using the fire, but she was sure. So they, she didn't remove a brick, but she did listen in and had some people below in the next, the room below talk. And she goes, I can hear the murmuring I can make out one or two words. I can't make out all of them. And I was elated. And that's with the flues closed. So I thought this, this could have done it. This could have been a way that she listened in. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is after the murders and she was acquitted and they got their money and she got the mansion on the hill, she and Emma immediately turned the old house where the murders were back into two tenements. That's what they were before Andrew bought it. And he turned it into a single family home. Guess what? She removed or plastered over the fireplace in her bedroom. It was the only one. All of the rest of them were left intact. That's interesting. 
I think it's interesting. And I could be totally wrong, but, you know, Limp Manchin did the experiment for me. She was always one step ahead of them, always knew what they were going to do. That's fascinating. But, I mean, you make a point of, of mentioning in uh, the book that her dad was actually on to her, like that um, the key, there was a key to that bedroom and, you know, where it used to be and where it ended up uh, so well, that the, he could. Yeah, all of the bedrooms were locked and they right. kept, Abby and, and Andrew kept their bedroom locked. There was an entry from the stair area landing and then there was the connecting door to Lizzie's room. Interestingly enough, this is how trusting this house is. On Andrew and Abby's side of the connecting door to Lizzie's room, they put a sliding bolt. And on Lizzie's side of the connecting door, she put a hook and eye. But the other bedroom door that went out to the landing, they locked with a key. And after Andrew found out she stole from Abby because of the horse car tickets, he took the key to the bedroom and laid it on the mantel in the sitting room in plain sight as if to say, I know it was you. Yeah. I trust Bridget. I'm going to put the key right here. I trust the maid. But, and it was, and every day she had to see that as an in your face. I know it was you. Here, go ahead. Take the key. Um, so, yeah, it was, it was a powder keg brewing in that house by the time the murders happened. Wow. So there are people, well, before, before I ask this question, so for those of you who are joining us or just joining us now, um, you are listening to Spirit Switchboard. I'm your host, Carolyn Shellhorn, and you are listening to us live on the United Public Radio Network and the UFO Paranormal Radio Network, 105.3 and 107.7. And today on the show, we have Rebecca F. Pittman, and we are talking about um, her book, The History and Haunting of Lizzie Borden. Um, where was I going to go? Oh, the, the, the stories changed, like testimonies changed. All the time. It, All the time. That's what I found fascinating. It was hard to even keep up. Like, um, so... Yeah, can we can we talk ab about that? We can, and I, I can I read you a segment of my favorite. I would love while for we're that. Still talking about the dresses. Yes, because please. we have the new Bedward cord that she murdered Abby in. We have the dress she had specially made, which, like I said, even her best friend and a next door neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, who came over that morning when Lizzie's saying, "Oh, Mrs. Churchill, come over, someone's murdered father." All of these people testified about the color of dress she had on and that they'd never seen it before, including Alice Russell, the best friend who's over all the time. Everybody knew everybody's dresses. Right. And they'd never seen it. They said it was pleated in the front, loose fitting. The morning of the murders, Alice reached over to, while the, they're still checking the bodies and it's hot and they're fanning Lizzie and Alice reached over to loosen Lizzie's dress at the waist because she thought she was going to faint. Lizzie grabbed her hand and stopped her and said, no, no, it's, it's loose. I am not faint. And, and stopped her from what probably would have shown there's another dress underneath it. So we've got the, those two dresses. Now what Lizzie handed to the police was a dark blue dress. The other witnesses said she was wearing light blue. Why'd she hand over a dress that was not the one she was wearing that morning? 
So, and this is the part I love, I love. So I hope you don't mind. Um, oh, of course, no. It's Knowlton had one shot. Knowlton is the DA that went after her with a vengeance. And during the inquest, which was the Tuesday after the murders, um, the murders were a Thursday. On Tuesday, um, he had her on the stand. And this is what she saw on it, on all of the questions until he asks her this. And he said, uh, Lizzie, is there anything you'd like to correct in your previous testimony? And she said, no, sir. He said, did you buy a dress pattern in New Bedford? And you see finally the, and she went, a, a dress pattern? And he went, yes. She goes, uh, I think I did. And he goes, where is it? It is at home. Where at home? Um, where at home? It's like she's buying time to think. Please. It's in, a, it's in a trunk. In your room? No, sir. In the attic. Not made up, meaning it hadn't been cut up for a dress yet. She goes, oh, no, sir. Where did you buy it? I love this. I don't know the name of the store. Well, is it on the principal street there? I think it was on the street that Hutchinson's bookstore is on. I'm not positive. And listen to this. What kind of a one was it, please? It was a pink stripe and white stripe and a blue stripe corded gingham. She just described the two dresses that were made for her months earlier in May. Exactly, the, the corded Bedford cord and the pink and white striped wrapper because he hit it so fast, she didn't have time. And again, she has to anchor her lies with an object. So right. the first thing she thinks of was the last thing that was made, which was in May were those two dresses. Well, now she's sunk. And here's where Knowlton dropped the ball. She didn't buy a dress pattern. She bought material. Mm, and is... he didn't know that. Dress goods back then could mean material. It could mean a dress pattern. It could be thread, lace, bows. He misunderstood. Even though Medley came back and told him that the lady said she bought material. So right. why didn't Lizzie correct him? Why didn't she go, well, it wasn't a dress pattern, it was material. And that's because that dress she had made, I guarantee you by now, is gone. Yeah. She burned the Bedford cord two days before the inquest started in the kitchen stove. It could be when she wore the new dress over the bloody Bedford cord, there could have been some blood transfer. It could have actually even stuck to the dress. This was August. The drying time on the blood would have been slowed down because of the humidity. Right. Why didn't she correct him? But the problem is now she's stuck. Yeah. Because if they go look for that dress pattern, it was made up. It was cut up and made into two dresses. And it was made back in May, not in July when she was in New Bedford. Right. So this, they, after the inquest, they find reasonable doubt. Lizzie's put in jail. And I'm, I have a point for this. During this time, Marshall Hilliard and Knowlton, well, mainly Knowlton, the DA, sends over Officer Fleet and Officer Medley to the house. Emma's there alone now. Parents are dead. Um, Lizzie's in jail. And they say, we need that dress pattern. Emma's like, say what? 
and they want to know, they look in the, the trunks in the attic, and, and the first thing she says is, I'll, I'll have to look for it and get back to you. I'm not sure where it is, and she sends them away. Knowlton sends them back again. We need the dress pattern. Now she's freaking out because she knows that dress was made in May. It was cut up. It was used. I don't even know if she has it or if the dressmaker took her took it with her. Right. So now the preliminary hearing is coming up. Lizzie's still in jail. And this is really interesting. The matron at the jail said that Lizzie and Emma had always had a great relationship. Emma visited her daily, took care of her, brought her food, all of that. Emma came in that day. This is right after the second time Fleet went to the house to ask for that dress pattern. And the matron stepped out. She's just right outside the door. And she heard, she saw Emma lean over Lizzie and say something to her. And Lizzie erupted and said, you have gave me away, haven't you? And she uh, said, no, Lizzie, I, I have not sure. You have. You have gave me away. And I will tell you right now, I won't move one inch. And she put up her little finger. And this was what the matron reported. And then later when her, her um, lawyer, Jennings, showed up, the, the newspaper reporter who was there heard uh, Jennings ask Emma, did you tell her all? And she goes, yes, I do believe that what she told her, and I, I don't know if it was in the Elizabeth Montgomery movie or if I saw it somewhere else where they added the line, I only told him what he needed for your defense. I think Emma finally ran to Jennings and said, what am I going to do? They won't quit coming to the door. I can't give them that dress pattern. They're going to know she's lying. Right. And it's going to look really bad. And so she, I do believe she asked Jennings to please help her. So finally, the preliminary hearing starts. Knowlton's had it. Right in the middle, he goes, I demand that that dress pattern be brought here today, before the end of the court day. And it shows up. Jennings brings it in, hands it to him. Knowlton opens it, looks in it just for a split second, and goes, "It, it's what I expected it was going to be. He knew he'd, he'd screwed it up. There was all that time Emma could have gone and gotten the exact one or just used the envelope with the pink wrapper and the right. cord and put a completely different pattern in there that wasn't cut up. And no attorney's going to stand there and unwrap this whole thing and cut it up and lay it out on the floor. And he knew it. He knew he'd blown it. Mm. Isn't that fascinating? It's totally fascinating. It's fascinating. There was, okay, there was a couple of points I was thinking of while you were while you were talking. There was also confusion about the front hall, right? Is it the front hall? Is, am I thinking about that correctly? Where the front door or the front hall closet or the front closet, what it was called and what it actually was, what some people were saying and that term. Am I getting it all mixed up? There was a closet right next to the front door that they investigated to see if a murderer could have hidden in there right. between the murder of Abby and Andrew because nobody was going to buy that in this house of locked doors for from 9.30 to 11 o'clock, which was when Andrew was murdered, that somebody really 
hung around for an hour and a half to murder the other person. Where, where did they hide? Bridget and Lizzie were all over the house. And so they did an experiment and they found if you stood in there and really scrunched back, you could pretty much fit in there, but you couldn't breathe. And so they dismissed that pretty quickly as a hiding place. Right. Is that what you meant? I think so. I think that's that. I think it's, um, it's right where there is a picture that you have of one of the volunteers sitting on the steps, um, at the bottom of the steps and it's in that section. But I think that's, that's what it was, was, you know, whether it was a closet or a hallway or in that front space. Um, well, there was a front hallway at the front door. Mm-hmm. And then at the back door was the back hallway where you would walk past the little ice room where they kept yes. the box exactly. and the pantry. Right. Um, in fact, during the, the trial, this uh, there's just so much, isn't there? There is. I know. Tell <laughs> me if I'm talking too much. No, um, you're doing great. And that's why I said, like, I'm on chapter 20 right now, which is about, uh, like, the burning papers and, and the the hidden hatchet. Um, and I, I know, like, I'm going to end up going back and reading it again and probably you know, feeling like I need to read it the third time because there's just so much. And I'm, I'm like, holy cow, holy cow. Even when you were talking about, about Abby, I'm like, oh my goodness. So there was a fake ponytail. It's a, yeah, it was a hair piece. It was a braid. Hate- they wore those a lot back then. I, Their hair yeah. was thinning. It was just faster than washing your hair. And, you know, they only had a hip bath. They had a metal tub. Or right. the sink with a pump. So it was very common to, to wear hair pieces. And, you know, that that was removed during the murder, you know. Yeah, it, was, and, it flung up on the bed during one of the blows to her head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's, it's a lot. It's, there's just so much. And I was trying to write little notes too, um, you know, that, that we'd be able to keep going. But I just. I just didn't get through the doorstop. Well, the, the <laughs> it is a good burglar weapon. It, um, it's, um, it's a great read though. I'm so glad that people are, are saying they're going to purchase it because it's, it's a great, and I, I mean, I have three others. I have, uh, three others all queued. So I'm, I'm. Oh, thank you. Quite welcome. You know, people have said this makes a great stocking stuffer. I said, I want to see the size of your stocking. Oh yeah. (laughs) Those sacks, those big Santa sacks. I know. (laughs) But what's, what's interesting to me while we're talking about the dress is the timing of her burning it in the stove because I believe she wore the bloody Bedford cord under that new dress for three days. How she did that in the August heat had to be horrific. And so she, that, but that there was nowhere else to hide it. The police did five intense searches top to bottom, went through all of their dresses um, looking for anything with blood and any of that on it. So I think she thought that was the safest place to put it. No man in that era is going to look under a woman's dress. So here's what's interesting is the murders were Thursday. On Saturday night, the crowd outside had grown to a thousand people that were just standing around talking. And you could hear them through the windows. It was very disturbing to Lizzie and, and the people inside. And Uncle John was back and staying there. 
Um, so Marshall Hilliard and the mayor came over and they were worried about the crowds because the night before John, Uncle John had sneaked off to the post office when they told them don't leave the house. Right. I, he was desperate to get a letter off. And I think what it was, was to stop the herd of Mustangs that were being moved to the Swansea farm for the deal because Andrew's dead. There's no more deal. Right. So he's just really, and they almost hung him when they walked to the post office, the crowds just gathered around him. It was like a lynch mob because he was the first suspect because he had spent the night the night before out of nowhere with no luggage and they're dead the next morning. And he was kind of a crumpled, rumpled looking guy. So anyway, the marshal and the mayor show up and they say, look, based on what happened last night, meaning with John Morris and the crowd, we would appreciate it if all of you stayed in the house for your own protection. And Lizzie pipes up and says, why is someone here suspected? And Emma is kind of like, and they said, well, it's, just, it's for your protection. Goes, I want to know the truth. Is someone here suspected? And finally, he said, I hate to say this, but yes, Miss Lizzie, you are suspected. And this had to be the shock of a lifetime to her. This is only two days after the murder. And I think she thought nobody's going to suspect her. Right. And yet, and so now she's been told and she puts her arms out she goes I'm ready to go now like go ahead and handcuff me and he goes that won't be necessary it's the next morning on Sunday that she burns the dress in the stove and Alice Rust them for four nights to be there for Lizzie and Emma through this horrible time and so they're having breakfast Sunday morning and they're cleaning up and Alice went into the dining room to bring in the dishes that or put the dishes back in the dining room that had been dried. She comes in and Lizzie's standing at the stove, stuffing, getting ready to stuff in the, the skirt of a dress. And she goes, Lizzie, what are you doing? And what's weird is Lizzie grabs the dress up and bunches it to just show her the part she wants her to see and shoves it in her face to where she's backing up and she goes, it's got paint all over it, see? It, it, I, I'm, I don't, I'm going to burn this whole thing. And it upsets Alice so much. She goes back in the dining room like, I don't want to see this. Right. And Emma's at the sink. And Emma turned around and said, Lizzie, what are you doing? And she goes, this is ruined. I'm going to burn this whole thing. But here's the testimony that I love the most. Alice comes back in. The skirt's now in the fire. And she said, there's a cupboard right next to the stove. Tall cupboard like a pantry. It's open. And she said, I saw Lizzie ripping down or tearing down pieces of a dress. And I let out a shriek. I was so happy. There's, I believe that was the sleeves. And the hem is that uh, she saw pieces of a dress. If you've already burned an entire skirt, why would you cut up the bodice? I think that was the part Lizzie had already cut up. And I, that made my day that she witnessed pieces of that dress and that she burned it. And then she said, I think that's the worst thing you could have done. There's police right outside on the steps. And Lizzie blurts out, why did you let me do it? But I believe that she, the night before they tell her she's a suspect, she's thinking they're going to come any minute and take her to jail 
And the first thing they're going to do is get her out of the dress she's wearing, probably put her in a matron's jail outfit. Right. Or frisk her or something, but somebody's going to find out she's got a bloody dress underneath the other one. And I think she thought, I got to get rid of it. And she burned it. And she couldn't leave. Police were stationed all around the house. So why do you think she was acquitted? Like, how did that... Oh, she got the dream team. You think OJ got the dream team? <laughs> Her attorney was Jennings, but the other attorney was the ex-governor of Massachusetts, okay. George Robinson, who happened to have been the governor who put the judge on the bench that oversaw the trial. He was responsible for getting the judge the judgeship. And during oh. the charge to the jury, which are all elderly men, they were already having a hard time looking at a 32-year-old ex-Sunday school board person sitting there, fanning herself. She'd fainted twice during the trial. They're already having a hard time thinking somebody could do a hatchet job like that. But the judge, literally the charge to the jury to tell them what to do before they go deliberate and, and pass their verdict, he practically tells them to let her go. He does bullet points of an exemplary life she's lived and all of this stuff. In fact, the next day in the papers, one of the right, the journalists put, he was the best witness for the defense. Was the oh, judge. that's interesting. And they let her go. She'd been in jail 10 months. She'd been in there quite a while. Like waiting for the trial. To happen. There were four altogether. There was an inquisition, and that was the only time she spoke. That was the only shot Knowlton had at her, and he blew it with the dress uh, She lawyered up. The next was the preliminary hearing, then a grand jury, which nobody knows because it's behind closed doors. And then there was the Supreme Court trial. Now, during the grand jury, this is interesting, Alice had not told that she saw her burn a dress. And I think it was going to Thanksgiving break during the grand jury. Her conscience was getting to her because it looked like they were going to let Lizzie go. She called them back after Thanksgiving break and said, I've got one more thing to tell you. And I think they were going to let her go. And she told them about the burning dress and it went to trial. And the mm. sisters never saw her again after her testimony on the stand. Did... Bridget's testimony changed too? Bridget knew so much more yeah. than we know. Yes, and here's an interesting one. I told you she went upstairs to lie down. So those people who are who are listening and, and not know the full like the whole story, Bridget is their maid. Is their maid. So when Bridget said, I'm not going out, I don't feel well, I want to lie down before the noon meal. This was 11 o'clock. A minute two later, Andrew was being hatcheted. So she went up to the attic bedroom, but she was hurrying and finishing the windows up there. This was Thursday was the window washing day. She yelled down to one of the other maids because everybody did windows at the same time back then. Thursday was window washing day. And she gets the rest of the day off after this, after the noon meal. I think she was yelling down about where they could go meet her for a pint. So she's yelling down from the window while Lizzie is killing Andrew, literally. Um, mm. You can hear she, she banged the windows closed, she said. She was making noise. 
But here's the spooky part. Then she goes to her bedroom to lie down to, to just do a quick wash on her windows. Her bedroom window overlooked the backyard where the barn is, where Lizzie was supposed to go be eating pears. That was her alibi while Andrew was being murdered, which would have happened right at this moment. The newspapers, because the reporters actually showed up before the police and they're interviewing everybody. And one of the reporters ran before they could shut him up. But Bridget said she saw something from her bedroom window. And later, Knowlton shut her up, which I couldn't understand because it must have been incriminating for Lizzie. And the barn was always kept locked with a padlock because it had been broken into a couple of times. They believed that the teenagers were stealing the pigeons. I think it was Lizzie both times. But did she look down at a time that Lizzie should have been in the barn, which means the barn door would be open and see that it was not only shut, but padlocked, which means it was impossible for Lizzie to be in there. Right. But if so, why did the DA who wanted Lizzie more than life itself in jail during Bridget's testimony shut her down? He actually said, when you went up to your room, you did not see anything at your window. You did not, did you? I mean, that talk about leaving the witness. Yeah, how he phrased it. Yeah, but I, that has bothered me. I laid awake at night. I thought, what did she see? And then Lizzie also had her lie the morning of the murder. She took her aside and told Bridget to tell people that she overheard Abby say she got a note from a sick friend to go out. And Bridget didn't. She finally admitted, I, I didn't hear that. So yeah. as that day went on, can you imagine it dawning little by little on Bridget that Lizzie probably did this? So do you think that because she was an, an immigrant that she was worried about how or, or watching how that was unfolding, if she knew that, you know, Lizzie was um, probably a narcissist and, uh, you know, that she could twist that story around that it would land on her? Is oh, that... absolutely. Mm. They believe they believe the dog over over Bridget. Absolutely. And the thing is, is when they came to take Bridget down for the inquest questioning, she thought they were arresting her. She was bawling. She was scared to death. They took her into the sheriff's office first and she blurts out. I don't think Miss Lizzie was in the backyard that day. She blurted that out. And she thought they were going to arrest her. They had to assure her, you're just here for the questions. We're not going to arrest you. So the, the night of the murders, which was Thursday, she refused to stay there that night. She went across the street and slept with the, a maid from across the street. She was scared to death to be in that house. They convinced her to come back the next morning and make breakfast for everybody because Uncle John was there. She did go make breakfast. Then she collected her little bundle of clothes and left, and she never went back. Yeah, that says a lot, eh? Well, maybe she so thought much. Lizzie would come for her. For exactly. Lizzie had asked her to lie. Uh, I mean, this story is just, there's so much to it, and I feel like there's still so much more. I can't yeah. wait to get back into it and look at some of the new stuff. Can you share? 
Well, there's two books that have come out since then, including her attorney Jenny's Jenny's right. journal, and then oh. the papers, which her, the um, the attorney Knowlton kept records of everything. And I have read most of that, and it is fascinating. Is there a smoking gun? Not in the Knowlton papers, but I'm I really want to go through some of these new ledgers and see if something pops out. Uh, what I found interesting too, when when uh, as far as I've gotten, is um, her not wanting to uh, have Bridget get the doctor that lived next door. Right. There yeah. was wasn't there two? There Good was two, there was two doctors, wasn't there? An Irish doctor, or no? There was an Irish police officer as well too was an Irish doctor and then a French Canadian doctor that was kitty corner ordered the house. Yeah. The Dr. Kelly was directly to the left. It was his maid that Bridget was talking to the mor that morning of the murders while Lizzie was killing Abby. And then right behind the house, they shared a fence was a uh, Dr. Shagman. And yet she sends Bridget off to Dr. Bowen but there's a reason. Dr. Bowen's kitty corner across the street, but Dr. Bowen is a really good friend of Lizzie's. He is aware that there's been tension. He's also the doctor that Abby ran across the street to the morning before the murders and said, I think we're being poisoned, which that worked for Lizzie just fine. Here's something to show that there's somebody out there trying to hurt us. And plus, Dr. Bowen would often walk um, Lizzie to church if her family was out of town he was a really good friend right so potentially another person that would twist a story or cover help cover for her as well too and and not an immigrant that she was not wanting to deal with and I think Dr. Bowen did he and his wife Phoebe were the only ones during the trial that agreed with the color of the dress Lizzie was wearing all of the rest uh, of them said it wasn't. And I think he did it to help her. Why, though? Like, what I think would... he felt sorry for. I mean, Andrew was a skinflint in many ways. He was a hard guy. He's not warm. I don't know. Or maybe he didn't believe she actually did it. But he and his wife are the only two that agreed with the color Lizzie said it was. Interesting. How, and did Emma, so, because I don't know the rest of the story, did Emma and Lizzie live together for the rest of their lives? For a long time, they got their mansion that Lizzie wanted. Emma just wanted a quiet life. She did not want, after all that they'd been through, she did not want the publicity. And Lizzie picked out Maplecroft. They move in, beautiful home. And I think at this point, Emma just wants to disappear. Let's just live a quiet life, but not right. Lizzie. So Lizzie decides to have parties, to go to the theater, which back then actresses were akin to prostitutes. She'd have huge parties at the house that the neighbors are, you know, clicking their tongues at. Um, and and there was Emma was finding more and more wrong with the whole situation. They lived together for quite a while. But then finally, Emma moved out. She couldn't take it anymore. And they did not speak to each other for the rest of their lives. They spoke through attorneys. And they really? died only nine days apart, which was interesting. 
That's fascinating. And I didn't know that at all, that, you know, the communication had stopped. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad. There were rumors that Emma thought she was have that Lizzie was having an affair with the guy, the chauffeur. Um, there was just Lizzie just wouldn't stop. Plus, she was back in the headlines for stealing from a fancy jewelers in Providence, and they did catch her. They found out she did indeed steal these enamel eggs that were fairly expensive, and so she's back in the headlines again. And I, Emma just wanted out. Do you think that it was just that she had this confidence in thinking she could get away with doing whatever she wanted? It's not like she would have lacked anything at that point to steal those eggs just because she wanted them. It's That's narcissism. I mean, plus... It wasn't just that. And in the book, it's very interesting. And, I, and I'm going to give credit where credit's due. Parallel Lives that was written by the two curators at the Fall River Historical Society pointed out the rash of burglaries surrounding Lizzie's house on, on the hill, on the Maplecroft fancy house. Her neighbor across the street that was her good friend is suddenly missing the souvenir spoons that were very popular then that you got at the World's Fair and Lizzie coveted them. She was always asking to see them. Those disappeared. Then just down the street where Lizzie would walk the dog, um, they got broken into and something was stolen. There was three, two or three or four neighbors that were, and even the police said, it looks like a female burglar did this because of the really? item taken. Yeah, there was, a man would want them and but then there's a rash of fires and all in all 11 of the properties that her father left she and emma burned uh, around fall river and i think she wanted the insurance she didn't want to be a landlord she wanted, didn't want to deal with the headache she just wanted the money 11 buildings wow and I mean, this story just never stopped. It was incredible. Wow. And then she built spite fences. That's what they called them between her and the neighbors. She didn't get along with anybody after they moved into the mansion. Nobody wanted her there. Like she didn't leave. No, no. And that's the thing people, and I think that's the pure stubborn, I'm not going anywhere. Uh, she was as stubborn as her father. It was that Yankee dig your heels in kind of thing. She did travel a lot with her money. She loved the plays, um, would go to New York and watch the, the theaters and things like that. When I did, I did a little, a, a little bit of, of research as well too. Like I, um, there was a false story that was in the newspaper as well too. Um, About shortly. Yes. Can you that talk about that? Horrible and embarrassing for the guy. Somebody dropped some rumor that she was getting married to this guy, Gardner. He was actually a friend of Emma's, of the, of her, of, they, the gardeners were very close to Emma. This thing comes out in the paper that Lizzie's picking out her trousseau in Boston and all over the place. And she's getting married this poor lady, I mean, and I did feel sorry for her for that. Lizzie had never married. She was a spinster by that point. 
it had to be hugely embarrassing for her and the guy. And he put it straight. He goes, there, there, no, uh, -uh. <laughs> so yeah, that made the papers. I don't know who did it. I don't know where it came from, but it had to be hurtful. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, so much of it, we just have uh, Julie asking a question. She's saying, didn't she change her name to Lizbeth? Yes, she did. She changed it to Lizbeth. She was trying to recreate herself. She was the only one to actually name her residence. They, nobody was naming their homes, but she had Maplecroft chiseled into the front step to the, to the front of the house. So yes, she did. She changed it to Lizbeth. So you stayed like in the, in the book, um, you know, you have photos of, of, um, you're so good at explaining the layout and showing pictures of this is what it would look like from this angle. This is what it would look like from this angle. And in those photos did any spirits in the house, give you a nudge. Did they sit down and go here? Let me tell you what, my story is, did you have any paranormal experiences when you were? I'm going to be really honest. Um, most of the paranormal came from the tour guides and the overnight guests I interviewed and the owner at the time, Leanne Wilbur. Right. And because the stories matched so much from such diverse sources, I have no reason to not believe them. A lot of it was at the top of the stairs right next to Lizzie's bedroom and the bedroom where Lizzie or where Abby were murdered were like this. I mean, they were just right around the corner. And right. they kept hearing voices from up there when there was nobody there. Sometimes it was two women. Sometimes it was a man and a woman. Um, Danielle Gabral, who was a tour guide at the time, would go in in the morning because it's a bed and breakfast and go up to change the linens. And she was there early and all alone. The stairs are wooden. There are the original stairs from when Lizzie was there. And she would hear the heavy sound of like the heavy shoes they wore back then. Just right. coming up the stairs behind her. And she'd look behind her. There's nobody there. And then she feels this hot breath by her ear and a sigh and somebody going like she's not cleaning the house correctly. And she always thought it was Abby. So I did not. It is the only place I've written about that I myself did not experience anything. I was I did sleep in Lizzie's room and I spent most right. of the time thinking of how I was going to write the book, thinking of the sounds I was hearing, where her bed was located. I, I wasn't really looking around, but... Um, all of the other stories, though, there's shadow figures, um, a lot of activity in the basement, which is where I believe she cleaned things up and broke the hatchet broke the and hatchet. hit it. Yeah. So there's a lot of stories, but not I did not myself. I personally I think back there in a couple of weeks. And if I something happens, I will tell you. I would love to know. I personally think that, you know, spirits. Um, if it's an intelligent haunting can vet us out as well too. Like, you know, checking you out. Are you, is this, I can tell this person's going to ask me questions. I don't want to answer. So I'm just going to hang in the back, <laughs> you know, well, like I tell my husband, I'm about yeah. to sleep in the house in the bedroom of a woman whose ghost probably knows I'm writing a book saying she did it. <laughs> right. This is it. Exactly. 
Exactly. I'm not feeling warm fuzzies right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you got the cold shoulder. Yeah, I did. I got the cold shoulder. Yeah, um, you got got the cold shoulder. There's a lot of atmosphere in that house, though. Oh my gosh, the minute you walk in, especially when you're in the sitting room where Andrew was killed, this there's just this oppressive feeling to the whole house. But do you feel that the people that go to visit it and the energy that people bring to it could contribute to that? I am not happy that they use a Ouija board there. I was mm. a little surprised. So yes, I do. They've had seances in there. These paranormal teams have done things. Um, yeah, that doesn't make me real happy. Yeah. And and it does. It 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 can poke the the poke the bear, open doors to open other door. Yeah, yeah, to to other things as well too. Um, Paula has a question for for you as well too. Sure. Um, she's asking if the mansion is still. So I'm assuming she's asking about Maple. Yeah. Is it Maple? It, it is, and I got to tell you, Paula, I'm very tickled about this. Um, the pre, it was never open to the public. The city wouldn't let it because it was in a residential area. But the previous owner, two two owners ago, while I was writing the book, said invited me to spend the night. And I spent the night a total of six times altogether. And she was kind enough to give me a doorknob. Oh, from, look from at that. Maple so it, in the parlor, there were two doors and Lizzie didn't want both of them because she wanted a grand piano. So they walled over one and look at the detail. And then I love the back of it. It looks like I'm not good with this camera. Yeah, no, you're doing great. It oh, it's square. Yeah, it's square, it's brass, it's really heavy, it's got a lot of detail on it. But she gave it to me, and I'm so excited. That um, was... I did, Paula. In fact, the one night I was there all alone, and it's still Lizzie's bathroom. It's the bathtub she sat in, or took a bath in. It's her mirror she would have looked in, and it's way down the hall from the bedroom I stayed in, and I would have to walk down that long, dark hallway Past wow. the room she slept in, and Emma's room was on the left. The doors are open. I'm seeing their beds. And half the time I'm going around going, Rebecca, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, how brave and dedicated. Like you're super dedicated to tell the story with as much accuracy and truth and transparency as possible. And, and you know, for people like me and clearly other people that are listening to the show, we appreciate that. Thank you. I, I've got to tell you, these people work so hard on these venues, Lent Mansion, Myrtle's Plantation, all of them, to well, bring them back to their former glory. These are old places that need work, and yet they've returned them to the Gilded Age. And I, my heart goes out to them and that they trust me with their story. For yeah. Their for their venue that they put their blood, sweat, and tears into, I never take that for granted. And they get to yeah. read the manuscript before it goes to print because I oh. want them to be happy. Oh, that's that's amazing. I I wrote a list out for people. Um, I mean, in the history and haunting, I, oh, and I wrote it's. I wrote deep dive like there. You deep dive. You deep dive in the way that I would like. I would want to know from every facet as like uncovering so many so salem lamp mansion stanley hotel myrtle's plantation and that you have a second edition there's like it's it's a second print. i think the myrtle's plantation is a second edition too um 
yeah. then the Palace I, of Versailles. Yeah, I, I was the only author that the Palace of Versailles gave permission to to write about their paranormal activity. And I have to tell you, that scream you heard was me because I had tried years before and these royal palaces, I mean, it's, I tried to get into Hampton Court and the Tower of London and they're run by the, the Royal Palace Association. Right. And it was, we don't focus on the paranormal. We only focus on the history, but thank you. Right. So <laughs> but you're, thought, they don't understand how. They let me in. And I wrote yeah. to the Palace of Versailles during, right before COVID. And she got back to me in three days. She goes, absolutely, you can write about it. And here's one of our historians. She'll help you get the, I went, oh my God. <laughs> that's so brilliant. And I think that's what people, you know, who, maybe need to be more open-minded in the people that you're approaching is that the bulk of the book is the history of it. Exactly. Oh, it's the biggest part of the book. It's at least 80%. Yeah. But it's, by it's the, the time big... I got back to the palace, I think they realized paranormal is big bucks. It, it brings in the, the yeah. visitors. And I think by then they had changed their mind. Um, Vicky's just asking, so I, I mean, we kind of lost in, in that she was saying, how did it affect you to be in the space? So, I mean, I would want to put that to all the places that you have been to, you know, how has it affected you? And is there one that was, um, like, did you have a scary experience in any of those places? I did. Vicki, I didn't get a chance to go to Versailles because of COVID. I had just gotten my passport and I was brokenhearted. And it just, as you know, COVID kept going. And I thought, oh, I'm, yeah. I'm going to write the book. And I did the best I could from Colorado. The other places I always spend several nights in different times. I'll go back at the end to get what I didn't have to get more photos or interviews. Limp. And it's spelled L-E-M-P. Limp Mansion in St. Louis is so dang active, it never disappoints. And the first night I was there, again, all alone in this giant mansion, and I'm in the attic bedroom, something kicked the bed and sat on my feet. And oh, that was really scary. It was around midnight that something kept kicking the bed. And I remember my first impression was it felt like a child because it was low and really clumsy. Like when you tell a kid to quit kicking the wall. Right. And I finally, when it stopped, jumped from the bed, ran into the bathroom, turned the light on, stood there staring. There was nothing there. I finally cracked the door to leave some light, got back in bed, and I guess I finally fell asleep. And about five o'clock in the morning, um, I went to turn over and realized I couldn't. Oh. And I thought, what the heck? And I could not move my feet. And I realized there was a weight on right. the side of my feet that I couldn't That's turn over. Crazy. Crazy. The bravest thing I ever did was to reach over and get my cell phone because it was still dark to shine a light down there that scared me i thought i don't want to see what it is and i thought the minute the light hits it's going to spring at me and i finally put the light on it and there were two distinct impressions like someone had been kneeling there or standing there and i took a picture of it that's brilliant it's rebecca i'm we we have to we have to close the the show up. I'm so grateful. Thank you. So this went by so fast. I would love to have you on again because you have just have so much to share. Um, 
but I, I, I appreciate, I appreciate that you spent your, your time. If anybody is interested in uh, the books, uh, it's Rebecca F. Pittman books, uh, com, uh, that you can purchase the books. There's so there's just, uh, please do. It is, is well worth it. If you are uh, here with us next week, um, I have Steve Gonzalez of ghost hunters and ghost nation ghost Academy um, coming on to talk about his book, a life with ghosts, true, terrifying and insightful tales for my favorite haunts. Thank you everybody that joined us in the chat today. And you have been listening to us live on the United public radio network and the UFO paranormal radio network, 105.3 and 107.7. Thank you so much much everybody oh it was brilliant thank you so much everyone is just saying amazing show and thank you thank you for being here you've been listening to spirit switchboard with host carrie lynn shellhorn on the united public radio network 105.3 new orleans